Welcome to Grandma Magic, a podcast from the Grandmother Collective. We are a nonprofit organization that supports and advocates for a world where a grandmother's power is seen, cultivated, and activated for positive change. The Grandma Magic podcast is an opportunity to learn more about the unique positions that grandmothers, aunties, and other older women around the world can play in advancing positive social development by talking to and learning from grandmother changemakers. We hope this series inspires you, brings you joy, and helps you recognize the enduring magic and wisdom that comes from grandmothers everywhere. My name is Lindsay Farrell, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Lynn Iser, president of the Elders Action Network and founding executive director of Spiritual Eldering Institute, which was the institutional antecedent to Saging International and a professional organization rooted in the teachings of Rabbi Zalman. A teacher, facilitator, and activist, Lynn focuses on issues at both local and global levels. We also happen to be neighbors in Philadelphia. Hi, Lynn. Hi. So good to connect with you again. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) So this is a question I sort of open up every podcast with because it's really rooted in the idea that we think grandmothers play such a huge role in building tradition and ritual and belonging. So can you tell us about a ritual or tradition that is meaningful to you and why? Well, thank you. It's a great opening question. I kind of consider myself a young grandmother and that my grand, my oldest grandchild's five years old. So I feel like I am beginning to form rituals with her as she grows into being a little person. Although I find myself doing some patty cake games and things like that, that I was given as a child. But If we're talking about rituals in general, I do many rituals and different blessing times. But one that feels especially important to me is about entering into deep time, allowing myself to move out of this sense of presence that I have, that I am present in this moment, and become present to what I might call the ongoingness of time, that I live in not only this moment, but in what I've been given from my own ancestors and also what I shall give over to my own descendants. And when I do welcoming rituals of what we call the beings of three times, the beings of the past, the present and the future, which is something I learned from Joanna Macy, it puts me into a different frame of reference. I'm no longer all important in this moment, but I'm all important in this ongoing moment of life that could reach back three or four generations to the traits I received, to the stories I've received, and what I'm going to pass on. So it makes me think of myself as a potential ancestor, right? It widens my sense of self. But I also have one very personal ritual I do when my granddaughter was born. When she was a few months old, I managed to go to the cemetery where my parents, my sister, my brother-in-law were buried. And it's a community cemetery, so I know lots of other people that are buried there, old friends and people like that. And my granddaughter was named for both my mother and my brother-in-law. So I brought a picture of her and I sat on the graves and they're next to each other. And I just got to talk to my ancestors, my beloved family, my parents, my sister and brother-in-law about this new little being and about my son and his new wife and how they were becoming a family. And it brings tears to my eyes now, just like it did then to be able to share with them that there was another part of our family 
of our extended family that I wanted to introduce them to, even though they weren't present on this earthly plane with us. And then I left her picture in a Ziploc bag at the cemetery. And I felt like I had introduced her to her family. And I mm. widened the sense of time once again. Mm. It was very meaningful. You know, my six-year-old recently learned about Dia de los Muertos. There's a Pixar movie called Coco, which covers it. But I think they must have also learned about it in school. And she's really fascinated with it. We recently had someone die in our family. And she was talking about creating an altar with her favorite foods and photos of the family and things she liked. And I think what you're speaking to is something innate in us to want to keep a connection to a spirit world or to our ancestors. I had an interesting experience. I told you earlier, my grandmother died when I was maybe 10 months old. So I never really met her. And my mother and my aunt, who was very close to my family, whenever they would talk about their mother, they would always go, oh, mama, she was such a kind woman. She never said a mean word about anybody. She was always so kind. And so that was the framework in which I began to know this woman that was my maternal grandmother. And it impacted my children, stepchildren especially, will tell you, I never say bad words about other people. I'm just not a person that gossips in that way. And I think I inherited that from her. And then I began to think, my gosh, if I inherited that kindness trait from her to some extent, where'd she get it? She didn't just make it up. She probably got it from her mother or grandmother. And to think that I have traits that go back generations that I just believe are Lynn, but they're not just Lynn. They're Lynn in an extended form. And what an interesting way to think about ourselves and what we can give to our grandchildren. That's the part that really gets interesting. Well, that's really interesting, Lynn. Do you want to share a little bit about your background? I know you studied public health and human development and family studies, but from your bio and from your experience, it's clear that you're a lifelong learner and a teacher and a facilitator. So what have been sort of the inspirations for you to go down some of these pathways? Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure I know the inspiration part of it. Looking back as an older woman now, I find that I'm really interested in why people do what they do. And so that might have contributed to my studies of human development and family studies which was then called Child Development and Family Studies, and it was a mix of sociology and psychology and child development. And my studies in public health grew from my post-college time when I was helping to form a free clinic in Northern California with the idea that everybody should receive medical care, shouldn't they? And that spurred me into going to public health school. I didn't do a traditional path at the public health school and that my rebellious nature could not allow me to work in the public health bureaucracies. And that was about the only thing that was open to me where I was living. So I ended up leading different programs in the community and nutrition and then the first homeless shelter programs. My father used to say to me, a rolling stone gathers no moss. And he was really clear that that was not a good thing, that I should be gathering moss. And from my perspective, I can figure out why you wanted moss. Although now I love moss and I would like to gather moss. So it's probably all true. But this Rolling Stone, I was just interested in experiencing life and I kind of went off and did that. So it's where I went when it was time to do something new. You asked me when we met early about my work with Rabbi Zaman Shakta Shalomi and the founding of the Spiritual Eldering Institute. 
And that was just that as well. I was interested in Rib Zaman's work on Jewish renewal and Jewish spirituality. And he needed somebody to head up this project that he wanted to do. And I was a likely person. So we teamed up. I wasn't really interested in growing older. I was 39. I was just turning 40. This wasn't something that was of interest to me at that time. And yet I learned so much. I felt like I was marinated in growing older, the process of becoming an elder all through my 40s, spending time mostly with people in their late 60s, writing exercises, rewriting exercises, proofing materials that have been recorded and turning them into written pieces. And it was a great experience. And it brought me to this moment. After my work in eldering, I started encountering my teenage children, my daughter in particular, my stepdaughter in particular, that was just mulling over the state of the world and why things were so messed up. This was probably 15 years ago. And that led me into that discovery, into that exploration, like, why are things so messed up? And is there something we can do? And that led me into being an, an activist, which was the natural extension of the spiritual eldering work. Because we don't just do that work for ourselves. That is an important part of it, is this inner development of becoming an elder, of taking on that responsibility, that role. And because we don't have mentors or role models, we really need to learn it for ourselves. But the giving over is the activism part. The giving over is how we stand up for future generations, how we become an ancestor a good ancestor by insisting that the way we live will provide for a thriving and just future for our grandchildren, our great, great, great grandchildren. I feel very blessed that at this time in my life, I can look back on what I've done and the roads lead to where I am. And I could think of many things I didn't do that I wish I had, of course, <laughs> but I feel pretty aligned with the roads that I've taken and the work that I've done. You know, I think it's interesting. What I've been learning in this eldering space around the community that's really thinking about passageways to elderhood and reigniting the idea that we want to build strong, vibrant, clear elders and the idea that we respect elders again, like bringing that back into our community. But one of the things that I'm learning or really been thinking about a lot, and I think that sort of speaks to your Rolling Stone-ness, is that we have forgotten that life is long and that there's many life phases and that each of those life phases, you know, or life stages plays a different role in our growth. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, because I hear you had your sort of 20s, 30s, sometimes I've heard it as the apprentice years, and then the years when you're actually doing things, and then the years when you're, and I wonder how you think about that. Well, when I was doing the original work with Herb Zalman, we were closely connected with Thomas Cole, who was in the University of Texas. And he had written several books and taught quite a bit about the stages of life. And so that each stage has a particular purpose and meaning. Also, Erickson, in his seven stages of, I think it's psychosocial development. I'm not exactly sure what he calls it, but it's seven stages. This stage of the 60s or so is regeneration of stagnation is I think the way he talks about it. And I think it's so true because if at this age of my life, and I'm just 73 now, I was only engaged in what I had done and keeping that intact and not trying to go beyond it or not moving with it into the next stages, 
I could see myself stagnating, like my life is good, I don't want it to change, and everything's perfect. But to understand that there's more to learn and there's more to give over leads to this sense of regeneration. So I want to put it another way, too. So as an individual, as a human, as a person, I think this last part of our life, this last 20 or 30 years, this elder time, is a time for us to do life completion. What do I really want to do? What have I missed out on doing? What are the regrets I have that I want to clean up? What are the relationships that I've messed up and want to resolve to some degree? You can't resolve everything, but you can at least come to a sense of peace with it, even if you accept that you did the wrong thing and accept yourself as being a flawed human being, but at least come to a sense of forgiveness. So for an individual, it's a time of life completion. Like, how do I finish this picture of who I am in my life? But we're not individuals. We live in communities and we live with families. And I think that my sense of immortality is what we hand over to future generations. So that could be a grandchild or that could just be the young activists that I work with or the young members of my congregation, my Jewish congregation, or somebody in the grocery store. You know, how do we hand over our sense of well-being, maybe our wisdom, and wisdom is kind of a funny word because it always feels so big, but sometimes it's really just the little pieces of wisdom that makes the most impact, like to be kind. <laughs> like if you're kind, that's really, that's a really good thing. So our handing over is both a personal sense of closure and something that feeds the next generations that we were also fed with, that we received. So what is it that we're passing on? You've had this incredibly, I guess, lucky almost experience to have. And I feel the same, right? I'm in my 40s. I'm now speaking with a lot of older women and having a sometimes very profound feelings and experiences by doing that. It's sort of shifting how I think about the future and what's to come and humbling me in some ways, but it's also making me feel assured that this isn't it and there's still great things to come and I don't know what they are. But I, I would love to hear a little bit more about the Elders Action Network and your role there. But what I'm experiencing, what you got to experience, do you feel that very many people in this society are, are getting to know that those life stages or those life phases? I think it varies. I certainly feel very limited by my own perspective. It sometimes astounds me that I know things that I think are just completely commonplace that other people have no clue about. Like, Yes, obvious. Right, it's obvious. Right, yeah. Everybody I know knows Bill McKibben, but if I was to ask somebody outside my peer group that I hang out with all the time, like my cousins, they don't know who Bill McKibben is. And it's like, oh, really? Okay, so given that, I think some people come to this eldering grandparent work naturally. Maybe it's because they were parented or eldered or grandparented in a certain way, but it's about giving over. It's about loving. There's nothing we need to do with our grandchildren more than love them and encourage them to grow into who they are and to share with them what we've learned over our lifetime. And that's sometimes hard to do with your children as a 73-year-old I can look at my granddaughter with a lot more perspective than I was able to look at my son as a 35-year-old. Mm -hmm. I was way more opinionated. And I was sure that mm -hmm. if I did this, he would turn out like that. And if I did that, he would turn out like this. And that would be awful. So none of that was true. And that's some of the things we learn over time. 
that what mm. we need to do is provide for the child to grow and love them and give them a safe container to grow yeah. in. And that container includes what we know about what's true about life. So sometimes I get called an elder in training. I'm still really young to be an elder in training. But I don't know that people who are of the parent generation, 30s, 40s, raising children today, are as much in recognition of the elderhood, like knowing that they should be heading in that direction, as maybe I am today because of the perspective that I have. And I wonder if that's something that as this movement, which I think is now 15, 20 years, or however long people have really been thinking about how do we bring a resurgence of elderhood, that it's as into the mainstream as it could be or should be. Does that resonate with you? So, okay, let's go back to that again. So slight correction, I've been doing this work for 32 years, and that's when Reb Zalman wrote his book on From Aging to Saving. So I think that was one of the first books. It was 1993, maybe 92, 94. So I think that was one of the first books at that level of the psycho-spiritual development of becoming an elder. And it was pretty radical back then. So there's a 30 years that we have here. I kind of don't like the idea of an elder in training. You wouldn't say to a six-year-old, you're an adult in training. You're a child. And then you'll get to be a teenager and adolescent and you become an adult or young adult. You'll grow into it. And I think that that's true. I think we grow into being an elder. It's important to have people that are elders so you have some sense of what you want to do. It'd be hard to be a child and not see any teenagers or older children. It would give you kind of a blank slate. Who knows what you would do? And that's the difference sometimes between a single child growing up and a child with four or five older siblings as to where they go in life. So I think that we approach our elderhood maybe when we're about 50-ish. I thought about this jubilee year, and in the biblical tradition sense, it's a time of letting go of certain constraints, certain debts, and freeing yourself from certain debts, and giving yourself a year without certain constraints to go into the next 50-year cycle. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting that we do that about our 50th year, and I believe that that's true, that that's a time when we begin to think, hmm, I'm getting a little older, what does that mean? And one of the first things it means is we start to face our mortality. If we can accept the fact that we're getting older, we don't say I'm still 39 or whatever that is. We must accept our mortality, which is a two-sided acceptance. One is that we're going to die and give up everything we have that we are attached to. And of course, the other is that it makes us want to live life more fully and appreciate what we have and be sure we're using those moments well, our time well, which is a gift. And I think some people just do it naturally. I think some people need a whole training in becoming an elder, how to do that inner work, just like some people need good parenting classes or they need good therapy. Not that there's anything wrong with us, but that it helps to sort it out in a community, even listening to teachings to say, do I believe that or don't I believe that? Is that true for me or not? That's a good thing to do. And some people Mm. just flow right into it. And we all, you know, succeed at different levels. And have you taught how to be an elder? Oh, I've taught a lot about the spiritual eldering process, and I love talking about it. And it continues to grow within me. What does that look like? Well, there's a couple of things. One is the way Reb Zalman developed it, Rabbi Zalman Shachter. He had a a paradigm that six or seven steps that you wanted to go through, as I said, face your mortality, affirming the success of aging. It's okay to grow older. Doing a part of life review, which is kind of classic 
growing older material. What have I done? What do I feel good about? What do I still need to do? What can I drop out of my bucket list? And when you do that, you also come up with your regrets, your mistakes, your challenges, what's still unresolved in your life. And that becomes part of this work at this time of life to come to some kind of resolution of the difficulties in our lives, whether it be severe teachers, people that were difficult with us, whether it be forgiveness work. Because I think if we do that, we come to our deathbed or if we are fortunate to have a deathbed (laughs) with a sense of I'm complete, I can let go. And wouldn't that be a nice sense that when we're dying, we can actually feel like, don't want to let go, but I can let go. And so, and then there's also work about a familiarity with the dying process. Have I written a will? Have I taken care of the physical things, the practical things that need to be taken care of? It's important to do those things because not only does it make it easier for future generations, but it helps us to resolve questions we might have. There's kind of a classic scenario we do about your deathbed and who would you want there. And, and every time I do that, I think about who I'd want there. It lets me understand who I don't want there? Why don't I want them there? And is that legitimate or do I have to clean something up? And do I feel okay about that? All these exercises and processes help us be in the moment and help us be authentic, if we want to use that word, with our life experience. And then I think the other piece in there is about mentoring and transmission you know, transmission of our legacy, transmission of what we've learned of consciousness, tweaking the history of the traditions of our people to future generations. Adapting to the modern era, is that part of it too? When you say tweaking, are you speaking a bit on that? In my Jewish tradition, for example, I've been part of a Jewish renewal movement and a Jewish reconstructionist movement. And so, for example, you might take something like kashrut, you know, what is kosher in your home? And question whether it certainly talked about how animals should be slaughtered, so it is a humane way of slaughtering an animal. But then you might ask yourself, well, is a chicken that's not free range or a piece of meat that's only kept in a feedlot, an animal that's kept in a feedlot, is that kosher? And so that's what I mean by updating some of our traditions. It's helping us to question about, well, how do these traditions apply to this time in the world as opposed to a thousand years ago? And shifting. And I think it's all about wrestling with stuff. So does that bring you to the Elders Action Network? Like the work that you've done in activism? Because I know you've done local, you've done global, you've been the president of the Elders Action Network. You said your son had started to question the world, which maybe you had time or you had reached an age when you wanted to do something. How do you draw a line between the spiritual eldering and that? So it certainly brought me to elder activism. Just from teaching my spiritual eldering work, I felt the inner urge to develop a website around elders as activists. Like, what does that mean? So for one, you refer to my son complaining about the state of the world. Well, it was my stepdaughter who was 16. My son's about 10 years older than her. When they were complaining about the state of the world, she was the youngest of five. And so I didn't have to be home every night to make dinner. So my life started to change. I was a very committed mother. I only went to like one meeting a week so that I couldn't become an activist. I couldn't go and go to a demonstration in Washington. I could not risk arrest if I threatened not to be home for dinner or to take the kids, pick them up from school or to do homework or any of the things that parents do with young children. So it became clear to me that as an older 
person, and then I was probably in my early 50s or mid-50s, I had the time to do what I couldn't do when I was younger. That was a big thing. And, you know, the resources come along with it. My networks are so much more extensive now than they were when I was younger. I can send in an email and it will reach hundreds of people because it's through four or five or six different networks that I'm a part of that know me and respect me. And that's an important thing, too. If you have a level of respect, when you send something out, people will be more inclined to read it or go, well, Lynn thinks that's a good idea. I'll look into it. But if I was a person that was pretty flaky and people had not learned that I was a responsible mother, responsible community member, responsible member of my synagogue, where I joined a committee and actually did what I said I'd do, if I had been a flake, they wouldn't pay attention to me. So that's another resource I have, that I'm a credible person that might not look so credible when I was 30 or 35. It might have been a different kind of credibility, but not what I have now. And then there's this yearning inside of me, like the world's a mess. And my children are older. And wow, maybe I'll have grandchildren. You know, I didn't have grandchildren 10 years ago. And what are we leaving for future generations? I want them, grandchildren or not, to have the beautiful world that we live in. We live in an incredible world. And yet we're really messing it up. How can I justify that? How can I continue living the life I've lived without taking that into consideration? And so it seemed like it naturally became part of my sphere of interest. Like my sphere of interest grew from myself to wanting to have children, to having a family, to building a home, to building a community, and then to ensuring that it would be present and thriving for future members of this community. So I guess it's a part of the spiritual eldering work that's coming into a certain kind of fruition, not on the personal level as much as how do we take ourselves as being part of the larger world. We talk a lot now about the web of connection or the interdependent nature of all life. And we are part of that. We are interdependent with each other. I could not possibly live my life without the many people that help me make it happen. Even the pharmacist that fulfills my orders and is kind to me when I walk in and makes me feel good. That's important. I think that's another piece that I'm finding as I grow older, the importance of acknowledging our interdependence with others and um, nurturing and caring for that web of connection, that web of life. It seems that there are more older Americans coming to the same realization as you. Do you think that is because we just have a very large baby boomer population Or there's something else that is driving folks to have these same feelings of responsibility and uh, needing to be a good ancestor. Well, my view, everything arises in multiple ways. So yes, there's more baby boomers and we have a larger population. We also have a longer and extended lifespan. So whereas when I was born, the lifespan might have been 72 years. Now my lifespan is probably in its 90s because of just the health and general well-being of my society. So what do I do with these extra 15 years or so? I can't play tennis or, you know, be recreational about it for that long. Anybody can retire and have four or five years of just enjoying life. And everybody should have some time to retire and have four or five years of sitting back and enjoying life. So we should not minimize the value or importance of retirement and But now we have that time to relax and do our life review as well as look around the world, which is pretty messed up. I mean, it was messed up back in the 50s and 60s, but there's some troubling issues right now, and they are all interconnected. 
And so how do we not notice that? How do we not pay attention to that? I think that more and more people are paying attention to that. At the same time that we've been the blessed recipients of a lot of wisdom about growing older, that you don't have to dye your hair. You don't have to say you're 39 to be still valued and important part of society. You can come out and say, I'm 73 years old and it's great. And I have a lot of energy and I have some wisdom and perspective and let's not waste it. And I'm kind of demanding that I want to not waste it. I'm grateful that younger people are also saying we recognize that you have some resources to share with us. I don't want to believe that the elders are going to save the world for the younger people because I don't think that that's true. But I think that we can use our resources to help them create the world that they need to live in and thrive. I believe that is our responsibility. It actually gives meaning to life at this point. It's fearful, but it gives meaning to our life as well. I love that. I, I, I think meaning has been coming up in many of my conversations that this has to mean something. It's not just having stuff and taking off the boxes of an American dream, but that there must be a, a reason that you were here. And that's interesting. Well, Lynn, I'm coming away with a little bit more perspective on what there still is to look forward to and how I can set up. I actually have been told you have to go through it. You can't skip into elderhood. You have to go on the path and have all the things happen to you. But I do feel in these kinds of conversation and in recognizing that there are older adults thriving and driving change and pushing still at the limits of things that there's so much more to come. And it's, to me, very hopeful. I agree with you. And I think it's wonderful. When you said that, I was thinking about a friend of mine, Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who's 90 years old or so. And he just works too much and he works too hard. And we all think that he should just relax a little bit and not be so hard on himself. And he's so driven. And sometimes I just put him in the box of this is the way Arthur is becoming an elder. He can't not do what he's doing because that is the person that he is. He's a driven, hardworking person. And so we're all going to do this eldering in our own manner. What would be best is if we really developed our consciousness to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, because that would help us. Yeah. It's the consciousness. That's what I'm hearing from you. It's the intention and the deliberateness. Yes, that's exactly right. It's the intention. It's the intention. And I think it's the same thing about our grandparenting. Anybody can become a grandparent, but it probably takes work to become a really good grandparent. At one point, I recognized that I had to spend time with my granddaughter it was this debate about, am I going to fly to Seattle again or not? How many times should I fly to Seattle? Isn't that endangering her future? And I recognized that her other grandparents are in China, and they couldn't fly to Seattle, also with COVID, and that she really needed grandparenting. She needed people that loved her beyond her parents, that offered a perspective that was a little wider, a little different, a little more nuanced, and that it was my responsibility to stand in there and do this job. And that was a wonderful sense for me that I could take on this responsibility because it really gave me so much joy. And she'll be whoever she is. She'll just turn out to be whoever she is and God willing or whatever willing, I'll be there to see. <laughs> Hopefully, you've got 30 more years, right? Right. Maybe? No, I got at least 10 or 15. At least 10 or 15. <laughs> 